Welcome to the Circular Plastic Podcast, a podcast where we take a deep dive into the field of plastics recycling. In each episode, I explore latest knowledge and best practices within circular plastics through conversations with industry experts and key market players. Today, I'm joined by Kevin Van Hem. Kevin is a professor at University of Ghent at the Laboratory for Chemical Technology and the director for their Center for Sustainable Chemistry. In other words, a true expert in the field of plastics and chemical recycling. I'm very happy to be able to talk to Kevin Van Hem, professor at uh, University of Ghent at the Laboratory for Chemical Technology. Kevin, welcome. Can you please tell us a few words about yourself? Yeah, sure. So I'm, I'm Kevin Van Hem. I'm full professor at Ghent University. In that university, I'm also a director of the Center for Sustainable Chemistry, which is a sort of super group in our university, which groups 300 researchers working all on uh, sustainable chemistry. Next to that, I'm also a CTO of the Capture Initiative. And uh, Capture is all about uh, resource recovery. And it groups basically, again, uh, more than 300 researchers, but then from different universities and research institutes. So that's it's an inter-university collaboration between Ghent University, uh, VUB, which is in Brussels, University of Antwerp, and also VITO, which is the technology office in Flanders. And what that center focuses, among others, on plastic waste, but also CO2. Next to that, I'm uh, also director of the board of the Laboratory for Chemical Technology. So that's more or less equivalent with uh, the chemical engineering department in a classical university. But uh, that groups uh, around 15 professors, all active in, in chemical engineering. And uh, in this area, we cover basically all aspects also, again, but of sustainability, but then of uh, the chemical process industry. Thank you, Kevin. I know you, you have many hats and you are also very busy. We've uh, at OPSO encountered many of your papers in the fields. We're working sort of together on, on different things in a way. But I heard the word sustainable several times in your introduction. So it seems that your research or the research of the groups you're, um, you're overlooking and yeah, guiding is a lot about sustainability in the chemical industry. And as we are focused on circular plastics in this blog, can you tell us a little bit more about that segment of your research that is actually dealing with resource, stepping into waste as resource, looking into recycling? of plastics for new plastics and in general making plastics industry and production more sustainable. So the former name of the LCT was the LPT with the P standing for petrochemicals. So what we were actually doing in, in general was large scale chemical production processes. And if you told that in, in the year 2000, then that was for sure not, not very sexy. If you tell that today, then everybody says, wow, it's unbelievable because all these large-scale chemical processes are responsible for large CO2 emissions. <laughs> and I'm very fortunate to be uh, director of the board of such a very nice group because the strength of the group is that we have uh, incredible experimental facilities. Uh, we have over 45 different experimental units, five large-scale pilot plants. And in this way, we basically can cover indeed all aspects of sustainability. So what we cover is uh, developing, for example, low carbon technology. Uh, so this means uh, typically we like to use, for example, CO2 as starting material. 
And this is, for example, relevant for the steel industry. So we have developed a process which converts CO2 back to CO, and the CO can be uh, reused in, in uh, the steel industry as feedstock instead of coal. Other things that we are working on is it's really the, the circular process design. So with circular process design, you have, of course, uh, uh, this focus basically on scope three emissions. Uh, so these are emissions related to feedstock it, itself. Um, so in this context, of course, we work uh, uh, a lot on plastic waste. So we have over 30 PhD students working on different aspects of plastic waste that can be mechanical or chemical recycling, but it can also be the whole process chain. Because in the end, many of the research that we would like to do, the first thing what we do is to sort of do a mass and energy balance and do a very quick life cycle analysis to make sure that what we are developing is actually better than what is currently available. A plastic waste that's not so difficult in most cases because there's still a lot of landfill and uh, there's still a lot of combustion happening over the waste. So if you take that as benchmark, then it's not that difficult to be better. But anyhow, I think that in that area, uh, I think we, we made really a lot of progress during the, the last 10 years. Yeah, it's, it's quite visible through many publications that also came out of your group. And uh, I, I was wondering sometimes when I, when I read those, right, you're talking about uh, steam crackers and the effect on, uh, on, on steam cracking, for example, from plastic pyrolysis oil, spilling plastic pyrolysis oil instead of virgin nafta. And I wonder how does it work in the lab, right? I mean, the, these steam crackers, they're all about scale, but uh, yeah, how do you simulate those? I guess it took also many years to build such a lab, but uh, I hear from you that you basically have somehow all the required steps to be able to do the process uh, and simulate everything in your labs. Yeah, so especially in that area, uh, I did my PhD also in the field of steam cracking, uh, but since then I, I moved on to many other things, but it's still a bit of my, my baby, I would call it. And uh, to be honest, even my wife is active in that field. So she also worked. And it's a, it's a family business. <laughs> it's a family business. Uh, so we almost called our, uh, our children uh, Ethylene and Propylene, but we <laughs> ended up with uh, Koba and Wood. So yeah, steam cracking is, is, is the baby. But, but it starts also even with the step before that. Uh, so we have the, also the facilities produced on large and small scale the oils that are basically fed to the steam cracking. So we, we can produce uh, plastic waste pyrolysis oils, catalytic and non-catalytic. Uh, in most cases, uh, now non-catalytic technologies are used. But then you end up with yeah, very complex oils. And depending on the starting materials, they yeah, contain uh, basically the whole periodic system. So everything is in there. There's a lot, a lot of metals. Uh, a lot of nitrogen, a bit of sulfur, but a lot of oxygen, also halogens. And by working in the field of steam cracking, that's something that steam crackers don't like. It's basically everything else apart from carbon and hydrogen. Uh, so if you say that the whole periodic system is in there uh, and you go to an industrial facility, then people will kill you. So that's why we have basically six different units in our facility going from uh, gram per hour scale to 10 kilogram per hour scale. That basically allowed to to test all these feedstocks and to test them in our units. Some of them are, have a value of, of 20 million euro. But if we destroy something of 20 million euro, that's pretty bad. But if we destroy a real steam cracker, that's several several billion. 
So yeah, that's why, okay, if you do test them for companies, then it's better to just destroy our units than to destroy their complete facility. So that's why we do a lot of testing. Okay, but now you mentioned actually all the, the collaborators or the industry partners that you have. Then maybe zooming in on this uh, space of recycling, you mentioned you do both mechanical recycling and chemical recycling. We now talked mostly about the, the, the feedstock recycling, so via pyrolysis. Who do you collaborate with within those areas? Who are your um, industrial partners? So, for example, we have a large-scale European project with, among others, uh, uh, there's uh, Borealis, who is uh, active in that European project. But there's also like smaller companies, uh, startups like Prime, a company that's also a very interesting company for me is also Colbrook. So they are developing new uh, steam cracking technology, fully electrified. Yes. Uh, but for the rest, uh, I think we, we can tell that we work for all the major, major oil companies uh, doing experimental tests for them. I think we are known for producing high quality data. And we produce data where the mass and moral balance is close. That's not easy. We know. No, that's more challenging what people think. Yes. yes. <laughs> so in that respect, we are known that uh, the quality of our data is, is quite good, I would say. Okay, that's great. But now you basically introduced, I guess you're referring to the Electro Project, which is a, a new funded project where you have uh, yeah, Boralis as an industrial partner, and then also Coolbrook and Prime as members of the consortia. And I was wondering, actually, I read about that project and I thought it was very interesting because you also referred to pyrolysis being mostly non-catalytic today. And I read that that project will also look at catalytic pyrolysis and also uh, an electrified reactor. Is that correct? That's 100% correct. So in electro, you basically want to demonstrate a revolutionary technology concept uh, where we link uh, the waste and the petrochemical industry. So what you want to do is, is provide a sustainable, low greenhouse gas footprint and something that's scalable. And that's also what you see in many of the technologies that are proposed. Some of them are not very scalable. And in here, and really in this case, we really want to demonstrate the, the full chain. So we really go starting from waste, but not only waste coming from Europe. We will also have waste coming from Asia. So uh, more specific from Malaysia, South Korea. We need to demonstrate uh, the versatility of the technology. And the scale that we are thinking of is, is really a 100,000 ton scale that we will demonstrate everything by the end of the project, which is uh, started end of 2022. So that's pretty fast to go in uh, that quickly to that scale. But we really believe it's possible. And one of the things indeed that we will test is the use of active materials or catalysts in the pyrolysis step. Because if you look at pyrolysis, then I will not call it random chemistry, but basically million reactions are happening at the same time. And this means that the product that you get is a very wide boiling fraction. You mentioned before that it's a very complex oil that you get out. And I guess now you're basically saying why, right? Because non-catalytic pyrolysis is very non-selective, right? As you say, it's random. So you get a very broad range of, yeah, wide boiling range of components, but also all different kinds of uh, hydrocarbon structures. So decision 
in these plastic chains is is completely random, right? It's, it's not completely random, but it's very random. Uh, it, yes, it's, it's not very well defined. Uh, so yeah. basically, indeed, you get uh, all kind of olefins, you get uh, all kind of branch components, and they basically cover a boiling range from 25 degrees up to 550 degrees Celsius. So this means a lot of everything. And that's also very challenging for if you go to the next step, then steam cracking, because some of these steam crackers can only accept, for example, a boiling range of up to 200 degrees or even lighter. So this means that you would otherwise have to throw all this, this heavy product away or use it for fuel. And that's something we really want to avoid. So we basically want to, to fulfill recycling. So this means that we have to make sure that the oil can be used 100%. And working with a catalyst or with an active material can really help to push it in the right direction. And, and that's also what we will demonstrate. That sounds really exciting and, and very much needed, right? To utilize as much of the carbon in the pyrolysis oil as possible. You mentioned now also olefins, right? So olefins are actually in the, the plastic pyrolysis oil, even as we know it today. And then the steam cracker is producing olefins. I hear people questioning, like, why don't you then just, you know, use those olefins? But the point is, they're very different. And in fact, olefins are detrimental to the, to the steam cracker, right? Um, yeah, so olefins is indeed a uh, very broad name for a lot of everything. So they go from very short ones. And what we want is basically for the chemical industry. So the chemical industry, you can imagine it like a tree where you have a lot of starting building blocks. And two of the more important building blocks are indeed olefins, but they basically are ethylene and propylene. These are the very short olefins. What you get from pyrolysis uh, of plastic waste or catalytic pyrolysis is a bit of ethylene and propylene, but a lot of other heavier olefins, so with more carbon atoms. And some of them basically have carbon atoms up to, yeah, they basically have 100 carbon atoms. And this means that you have to yeah, move those to, to lighter components. So that's basically what uh, the chemical recycling as first step is, is all about, to create basically feeds that are acceptable for steam cracking, so not too heavy. So the heavier olefins, if they are inside the, the oil, they are known to create fouling. So fouling is, is you can imagine, like, like the solid coke, solid carbon. So if that would happen in a process, that runs 8,000 hours, this means that you would have to stop sometimes very quickly. And yeah, that implies a lot of money that's being lost. Eh? And, and that's one of the big issues. So olefins are undesired in the feet. There are even specs of two weight percents. And typically in oils, we have 30, 40% of olefins coming from uh, pyrolysis oil. So. Thanks a lot for this explanation. And maybe let's stay a little bit more on the pyrolysis oils and their composition. And then also talk about the effect that that composition has on the on the steam crackers. So basically focus on this feedstock recycling as you really have unique knowledge on this. I was also wondering yeah, about the aromatic content. And then obviously you said there is all these contaminants that also pose challenges. So what poses challenges, let's say, in the steam cracker, in the furnace itself, and what downstream? Can you uh, tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So we already approached the uh, olefins. So let's start first with aromatics. So yeah, aromatics, if they are coming from the pyrolysis oils, then typically they're related to polystyrene. And polystyrene will mostly result in styrene as monomer, but also some benzene and some other components. And in the steam cracker, the, the aromatic ring will hardly break. So this means all the aromatics that you put in with this 
aromatic building block, they basically will also end up as aromatics. And aromatics are typically less valuable than ethylene and, and propylene. So from that point of view, you basically are putting something in that also leaves again the reactor, which is in the end not so wide. So from that point of view, aromatics are uh, not that desired to have it in, inside the, the steam cracking piece. So, so if you can have less uh, of those aromatics, for example, by better sorting, by removing the polystyrene out of this polyolefin uh, waste feedstocks, then that, of course, will be beneficial for, for steam cracking. If we go to impurities, uh, impurities, this means that think about nitrogen. Sorry, sorry, Kevin. Sorry. Let's stay a little bit on the polystyrene. So maybe, you know, brief excursion back to the waste itself. So, okay, you're basically saying that polystyrene is best sort of sorted out of that, that polyolefins mixture, right? Um, in the, in the beginning of the process. And uh, I think we very much agree with you because there is probably an optimal pathway to recycle each type of plastic. And I think polystyrene, as you said, it goes to styrene monomer. So probably it is a very good way where you can then maybe just polymerize that monomer again. Do you see the same way? Yeah. So this is also what we demonstrated. So I've been working on polystyrene for almost a decade now. And that process is actually being commercialized as we speak. So uh, together with Innovary, uh, basically are building a large scale unit, I think about 100,000 tons in, in the Antwerp neighborhood, where polystyrene, different kind of polystyrene waste is being converted back to the monomer via Parole's technology. So that can be done quite efficient. And I think even this morning, uh, we are doing experiments on our Vortex reactor. It's a very novel reactor that we have developed in Ghent. And the first data that we got when, when we were pyrolyzing polystyrene is that we got over 90% of styrene monomer. That's a very good result, yeah. Yeah, almost too good to be true because now currently selectivities are around 65%. So we hope by the end of the day, I can say that uh, we get 90 or 95% styrene uh, monomer. But that uh, is, of course, that's a fantastic result. This means that we can really go from polymer to monomer back to polymer with almost 100% efficiency. And that is indeed very efficient because you don't go all the way via NAFTA as you do in pyrolysis maybe of mixed olefins. So a really good result. And I think it's a nice example, this, that you mentioned with the Antwerp uh, plant of you know industrial applicability of the research that comes out. So uh, sorry for diverting you. I think it's it's also an interesting point. And I know you had relevant experience to share also on, on the polystyrene to styrene pyrolysis. Let's go back to the contaminants in the, let's say, the mixed plastic pyrolysis oils and how they uh, affect the steam crackers. Yeah, so pyrolysis or chemical recycling is basically, in general, it's not new. So it was done in the 80s and the 90s, but then it didn't make it. And one of the reasons was, of course, availability of a feedstock. That was one aspect. Uh, we have need a steady feedstock supply, but the other thing was impurities. And this was related to yeah, uh, poor separation, but basically also the complexity of plastic waste. Uh, we, we really think that plastic waste is just polyethylene, but basically the whole periodic system is there, as, as I mentioned before. So what should you think about important impurities which are in there, which are not good for, for example, steam cracking, is, for example, nitrogen. So we have the typical nitrogen containing, the amount of nitrogen that can be in the steam cracking feedstock is 10 ppm weight. If you think about the pyrolysis oils, you basically end up with at least 1,000 ppm. So you have a factor 100 difference. So the only way to resolve that issue is to either blend it down or to hydro-treat it. So both options are, are being investigated. 
So currently, I think most trackers, they try to blend it down, but there's, there's really concern about this, for example, because the nitrogen containing components are a safety concern. They can lead to NOx, NOx formation inside the steam tracker, and that leads to NOx gums and it can lead to explosions. So, and these things you can only see maybe in three, four years. So yeah, that's why there's basically still a lot of concern about a lot of these impurities, and not only nitrogen, but also metals. Uh, metals is the, other elephant in the room, uh, you basically have uh, a lot of iron, but also nickel, vanadium inside plastics. For example, think about colorants and so on. They're also quite detrimental for steam crackers. And quite recently, so a few months ago, we presented some work that we did together with, with Paul, and that's the filtration of these plastic waste pyrolysis oils. So what we did is hot filtration. And we were basically able with very fine filters to demonstrate that we could remove over 95% of all the metals and even do that selectively. So this means also that you can recover those metals, uh, which again is also good if you really want to close uh, the cycle. So also in that respect, uh, we, we are also making a lot of progress. So still a lot of exciting work being done. Great. That's very interesting. Yeah, we work on hydroprocessing at Stopso, so to bring the contaminants down. But uh, it's a very interesting alternative, I guess, the filtration. Or maybe there's complementarity as well, because um, I guess filtration will not solve the nitrogen problem, right? Indeed. Yeah. So that's why all these technologies are complementary. Yeah? So they're basically part of the chain. The good thing about filtration is it's relatively cheap, but it also will still require that there is hydro treatment. Huh? So it, it will not resolve everything, but it will make it easier at least. Yes. And and by blend down, I guess you mean, of course, the dilution that is present today, because also the availability of plastic pyrolysis oil is not great. But basically, the industry continues investing. And as uh, capacity gets added, it's reasonable to expect that all this nitrogen will also present problems. And not only nitrogen, of course, all the other things as well. Well, at Topso, we also did like an analysis of nitrogen species in plastic pyrolysis oils and compared those to fossil feeds and we could not see a single overlapping peak. So I think uh, it's also completely different species and they come from, as you mentioned, colorants and, and many different things. Yeah, but also proteins. Uh, just think about food, so many proteins being in there. It's a, it's a different world. Uh, so we are very fortunate to have very selective detectors. We work with uh, what we call comprehensive QDDC uh, together with uh, nitrogen chemiluminous nessence detector. This is a very complex name for something that can only see nitrogen in a nutshell. <laughs> but basically, that confirms what you're saying. Eh? So we, the nitrogen-containing components are very different than the ones that are in classical fossil feedstocks. And this means also from an upgrading point of view, from a catalyst development, hydro treatment, this brings new new challenges. Eh? You really want to be sure that the nitrogen-containing components, especially those that can really end up in NOx, uh, because NOx gum formation is really a big safety concern in a steam cracker, you really want to make sure that those components are really destroyed. If you have components like ammonia, that's not a, not so much of an issue. Ammonia will not even crack a lot in, in during this, these things. Nevertheless, it can be also a contaminant for, for the catalyst downstream, so that's a different issue. So uh, yeah, it's, it's a very complex uh, way. So, so we're not there yet. No, no, but obviously, okay, there's a lot of work and a lot of progress, which is very encouraging. I had another um, question about something that I've noticed in one of your articles, uh, where which was that you've actually gotten like a higher ethylene yield, so higher product yield from some of the testing of plastic pyrolysis oils in the steam cracker versus 
virgin naphtha, but obviously then the, the heavy products also increased. So can you tell me a little bit more about those results? I was surprised to see that, you know, plastic pyrolysis oil can actually then in some way get a better yield of the target product. But obviously then it comes with some challenges as well. So it's a trade-off, but can you just comment a little bit on that? Yeah, if you look at the plastic waste pyrolysis oils from a molecular level, then the carbon to hydrogen ratio is pretty good. Uh, it's, uh, if you compare it to NAFTA, then it's actually better. And I will just use the words of, of um, uh, one of my favorite collaborators, which is Dr. David Brown. He's, he's one of the, the gurus in steam crackers. Uh, but basically, if you have to describe steam cracking in a very simple way, it's all about carbon to hydrogen ratio. Right? You basically want to end up with a product which ethylene, which is also has a certain carbon to hydrogen ratio. The more hydrogen you have inside the feed, the better it, your ethylene yield will be. In a very naive way, that's how it works. So in that respect, uh, the, the pyrolysis oils are actually pretty good feedstocks. Uh, the, they contain typically less aromatics than, than uh, the typical naphthas. They have a higher hydrogen to carbon ratio. So it is expected that you can form more ethylene. Also, the longer olefins, they can have special reactions like retroene uh, reactions that really selectively result in ethylene and uh, propylene. So from that point of view, they're pretty good feedstocks. However, they have a, this very heavy tail. And that heavy tail, that will also do some kind of what we, in a simplified way, I can say it's like a polymerization. And if you form a very heavy viscous product, if you condense that out, that can lead to a sort of tar or very solid product. That's also not that beneficial. So that's something if you can re also remove the heavy tail uh, by Either hydro treating or uh, cutting it out or doing catalytic treatment that will also be beneficial. And do you think catalytic pyrolysis will be able to give us a better plastic pyrolysis oil? You know, chopping the plastic in maybe smaller fragments and avoiding the heavy tail. It can for sure help, but again, there the elephant in the room is again the contaminants because what what catalysts don't like is also the contaminants. For example, a recent work that we published uh, last year was a single step conversion. So we basically bypass the, the whole steam cracker. We basically do, do um, a catalytic cracking and we end up with selectivity to C4 olefins, eh? so C ethylene, propylene and, and uh, butenes of uh, more than 90%. So that's, of course, a lot better than what a steam cracker can do. There again, eh, the, the issue was the, was the catalyst, but we tested over 100 catalyst and we found one catalyst which does not seem to deactivate even with the metals so if you can invent things like that or again also to go to nafta or to other things that's basically that's the magic eh? it's not only going to the selectivity you have to make something that is also robust because all these processes work all the time well, that's that's a challenge of course yes i mean downtime is by no means uh, of interest but i guess okay it's still promising you know one out of hundred is better than zero so um, hopefully with more work and more uh, research development put in can yield to something. Yeah, we did something really crazy uh, the last uh, month with uh, carbon nanotubes. And that seems also uh, giving amazing results. So it's, uh, I think there's still a lot of work to be done, but really exciting results that will be, will come in, in the, to the field in, in the coming year, which I think will amaze many, many people. So I'm very hopeful in that respect. You mentioned 
now that uh, the steam crackers cannot do obviously yield to olefins or to materials or to components going then downstream to plastic uh, of anything close to 90%. So so how much is roughly the yield out of the steam cracker of olefins and also maybe C4 components that uh, and higher that would then go to plastic? Is it about 50% or can it get higher than that? Yeah, it can be 50-60%, but there are possibilities to make that higher. And one of the aspects is also the steam cracking technology. So we're currently developing a new reactor technology which basically can increase the selectivity based on our simulations of 20 to 30%. So that would, again, like increase the sustainability of the whole aspect. And steam cracking field has been very incremental with, with progress on the reactor side. I think now, today, with, with uh, 3D printing and, and really advanced reactors, we can drastically push that. And I think with, with the insights from our group, we seem to have found something really amazing. And this would mean that we, we go from the 50, 60% to 80%. Wow. So that would be an incredible invention. So we hope that we can demonstrate that. So I just submitted a proposal and related to that. So I hope it gets funded to be able to demonstrate that. Yeah, good luck. I mean, it sounds like a true game changer, really. And I think it's interesting, like, of course, the, all these innovation in different steps that you have in this process towards, you know, new plastic from plastic waste, you can kind of superpose that that innovation to get maybe to some results never seen before. So very interesting. I just wanted to address the Electro project one more time. I, I have two questions. Just one is that I've also seen that there's a, a new extrusion technology being demonstrated in the same project and wanted to hear from you, like how much does that mean for the pyrolysis process and whatever happens downstream? And also, I wanted to hear how you see the research and innovation, uh, funding opportunities and the support that European Union is providing in that aspect. So if you look at the electro value chain, so it basically it starts from waste and that waste needs to be fed to the reactor, which is a, a paralysis technology, but with active materials. So uh, and also options to have catalysts. And now we go to the electrified steam tracker. So. All the steps are electrified. Uh, so, but one of the critical steps, uh, if you want to make a continuous process with solid material, is actually feeding them. And that's more difficult than what people think. So just feeding biomass is already very challenging. But now you have something plastic waste. And when you heat it up, it becomes like a viscous melt. And if you have to do that inside the reactor, basically that consumes a lot of heat inside the reactor. And it basically means that you don't get the optimal conditions because you have a combination of making this thing melt and reactions. So that's why we, we have a two-step extruder system in the electro project. So uh, we have the Modix technology, which is developed by VTT. And that basically allows to create a sort of very dense feedstock, very dense particles, which is then set to a second extruder where you also have the capability to remove things like uh, HCL. For example, if there's a bit of PVC still inside your feedstock, then that will decompose at temperatures of around 350 degrees Celsius. And if you can remove as much as halogens in advance, and also the Modix allows to remove, for example, brominated components, then you really remove the loads uh, from those, your pyrolysis reactor and, and you're upgrading step a lot. So the concept is there that by having this double step extruder, we can drastically remove uh, the halogen content inside the oils that are being fed to their the steam cracker. And that's a crucial element. And the, sometimes 
people forget that, that by doing this pre-treatment, that you can really already avoid a lot of problems in that respect. Yeah, I guess that's corrosion predominantly, right? That it also helps with, and then that probably helps even the, the pyrolysis reactor, which would also suffer from challenges. Yeah, indeed. So corrosion is a big issue. If you read reports of the 90s of the commercial BSF plant on, on with plastic waste, then they had a lot of issues with corrosion and then causing uh, actually fires. So this is really something you don't want on, on a large scale production site with hydrocarbons. So corrosion is really a big issue. You can avoid that with special materials. So for example, if you go to pure nickel as uh, as material, then you can avoid it. But that's then super expensive. And you need to think about cost. And thanks a lot for referencing these activities on plastic pyrolysis in the 90s. Yes, that's also very interesting and fascinating how, you know, sometimes you can be too early almost with, with a solution and, and it fails, right? And then you revisit it 30 years later. Okay, what about EU and funding? Like, how do you see in general innovation in, in this sector? And, and by sector, I mean, I guess, both circular plastics and also decarbonization of steam crackers in general. You mentioned electrification. So, so, so how do you see the support in terms of funding and in terms of maybe other uh, incentives? Yeah, so it's, of course, very competitive. So the European Union has a large number of goals, specifically focusing on electrification and also on plastic waste. So... It, it is competitive, but I think it's there's sufficient funding at least available. I think it can be more. But for example, I think what the research community could really use in that respect is, is like uh, there are also things like cost actions. These are networks where you also bring researchers and industry together. This does not really cost a lot of money, but I think that's also quite crucial for this field. You really have to bring uh, more researchers together. So now you have only very limited groups that are working on these topics and they, they speak to each other. But basically, we have to engage the whole community. And this is something that I, I'm missing currently in the European landscape. Uh, we submitted now two times a, a cost proposal on, on this area. Well, the, the reviews were quite surprising. Uh, they say that uh, pyrolysis and gasification are not that important. So uh, I think in that level, there's still some education to be done. But... I think the European Union should also play its role there on community building in this area, really bringing companies and people from academia together and forcing them to talk to each other. Yeah, well, that's probably the only way forward, right? And uh, I think on the legislation side that there are the recycled content mandates, which I really fail to see how it can be done without um, these chemical recycling technologies as pyrolysis and gasification, even as you say. But you also work on mechanical recycling, right, in your group. So, uh, and you have also some very nice articles on the complementarity and the difference in performance of the products obtained via the two recycling pathways. And you're talking there about substitutability of the materials. You're addressing both technical and market ability to substitute materials. And I think that's very interesting as well. Can you maybe just tell us that and then we'll slowly wrap up the talk? Um, well, so this is work that is mostly done by my, my colleagues, uh, Steven Emiser and, and Kim Rahert. They are two professors also in Ghent University, but Kim also moved recently to University of Maastricht. So we have a what we call open innovation uh, or very collaborative spirit uh, among the professors. So we try to bring in the different areas for the students. The students have typically more than one promoter. So this helps for their vision. And together with, with Steven and Kim, so we, we really looked also a lot of mechanical recycling, not only 
on production of the, for example, films from a mechanically recycled uh, material, that's actually a lot more challenging eh? So than, than what people think. It's not because you have done recycled material that you can produce a nice film. We even used artificial intelligence uh, to help us for screening purposes. So what can we make from certain quality of uh, recycled material? And then we can basically decide what is possible there as well. So it really goes very far. But if you go to then the pre-treatment style stuff, then there basically is also a lot of sorting, but also washing solvent treatment that still needs to be done. And this also has to be done sustainable. So we did a lot of work on, on uh, sustainable solvents. So we don't want to use uh, solvent that will destroy uh, the world. And that typically brings in an additional complexity. So also there we like to include uh, all the principles of green chemistry in that aspect. And uh, one of our students actually, uh, she won this year the Pipette Award, which is basically the, the prize for the best researcher in, in, in Flanders with her work on mechanical recycling. So uh, she, she did the amazing work on solvent treatments of uh, mixed plastic waste and uh, in the end make products that from a mechanical point of view are almost fully recyclable, which is an incredible accomplishment. So I guess just to reiterate, these solutions are, are indeed complementary and the more solutions we have, the better positioned we are in the future to deliver on the circular economy. And how do you see the pet chem industry this whole decarbonization journey. Do you think that we can uh, reach net zero by 2050 or how how will it look and what will it take? Yeah, to be honest, I, I'm a bit concerned because if I see uh, definitely the European scene is that it's, it's very competitive what's, to what is happening in the Middle East or in, in China. I think the last thing we want is that we destroy the whole chemical industry in Europe. So I think we have to make sure that by the measure that we impose is that we just don't move the production to somewhere else. Uh, that's, of course, an easy solution that we don't have any CO2 emissions anymore. Uh, we just put our head in the ground and we just import everything. But I think what we have seen during the last uh, years uh, with the issues with Russia is to have it as key to have uh, in, uh, certain in-house production. So in that respect, uh, it really is a, a balancing exercise. And I see that European chemical industry has difficulties to being really 100% competitive with countries where oil is, for example, very cheap. And then on top comes the sustainability aspect. I think we really have to do everything what we can. It will have to be a step-by-step -step approach. So I think we, we really have to explain to the public, this is not something like on your iPhone where you can just shift to a new app. This is something that will require a bit of time because I think what people now think is just, okay, chemical industry, you just put uh, new apps, everything is solved. And uh, yeah, okay, tomorrow we have everything green uh, with electricity and, and uh, nice chemicals, uh, no emissions anymore. It doesn't work like that. Uh, so if you build a facility, this costs several billion euros. You build it for 20, 30 years. So if you make an investment today, that will still be there in 2050. And in that respect, so if I see what has been built in, in the last years and that will be built in the coming five years, I think it's quite unrealistic to really say that we by 2050 will be completely net zero. I think we will have made huge steps, but it's completely net zero. I think that would not be an, an honest opinion. I think we really will drastically cut our emissions and we will drastically use plastic waste as a resource 
But I think we will have to be fair that by 2050, that there will probably still be some fossil resources that will be used even to a lesser extent than today. But probably only by 2080, it will be fully net zero. That's my, my personal opinion. If I'd see all the also predictions of larger companies and also by energy authorities, they basically end up also more or less in 2080 than in 2050. I think it's super interesting what you shared now as your opinion. And I think it sounds uh, very reasonable, very right. But uh, you also did say the keyword, right? Okay, it's step by step and it somehow needs to be harmonized. Like you are not an isolated system in any of the continents. It's a world market and sustainability as such is also a global goal. Yeah, I tend to agree with you that probably 2050 is a, a big, big challenge. Also, what you've kind of mentioned several times throughout the talk, if you move or you change one thing, that also causes sometimes, you know, changes somewhere else in the system. So none of these solutions also is one that can stand alone. It gives consequences somewhere else, and then you need to work maybe to improve or to adapt another part in the system. Sometimes we tend to also underestimate just how much time it takes. And it's such a, an ambitious target. I really enjoyed uh, both this last explanation and the whole talk. Thank you so much. I think it's fascinating uh, how many different breakthrough ideas and technologies you're working on. I learned a lot about especially the feedstock recycling on the pyrolysis oils and their effect on the steam cracker. And uh, I would just like to thank you for the conversation today. If you have any last words or remarks, please share with us. Well, one last thing is that I think one of the critical aspects is also social aspects. So we really have to engage in discussions with NGOs and with the public to explain why things are moving in a certain direction and why things are needed. And things like, for example, mass balances, mass balance approaches and so on. So we really have to explain very clearly as uh, industry, but also as, as people from academia, why these things are needed. So we should really enter those discussions and not run away from them. I think that's what happened during the last decade is that uh, people run away from those discussions and then you really get the opposite reaction. So it's also creating social acceptance, and, and but social acceptance you only get by discussion and explaining your position and listening to others. So I think this is really a critical aspect in sustainability that we don't have to forget. So this is more than technology. It's also uh, the social aspect. And this is really something that I believe in that is essential to make progress. I couldn't agree more. I guess it is the new, how do you say it, the new technology that comes with these new explanations and sustainability is really under scrutiny. No one wants to treat it just as a word. You want to have results. And of course, greenwashing is a very sensitive topic. So yes, it is through data and transparency, uh, certification, and also, of course, first and foremost, the dialogue that you're mentioning that I hope we can um, get through somehow to get that alignment between industry, public, and, and global goals for sustainability. Indeed. Okay. Thanks so much, Kevin. I very much enjoyed it, and I hope the audience will as well. So I wish you a good day, and uh, I'm really looking forward to reading new articles. I'm sure there are several already in the press, and uh, also following all the great stuff you do for the academia and also for the industry, of course. Thank you. Thank you. Have a nice day. Bye-bye. Thank you. So that was a very good talk that I had with Professor Kevin Van Hem. Mikola, what are your main takeaways from this? 
Well, I found it extremely interesting. And also one of the things that really made an impression on me is the massive amount of efforts that his group is doing and his collaboration. I think I heard more than 45 different experimental units, which is quite a substantial amount of units, uh, five large-scale pilot plans, also big. And, and just thinking about the amount of people that you need to operate them and interpret the results and everything. So very interesting to hear about this uh, academic side of uh, plastic recycling. Yeah, but I think actually this group is really uh, not only, let's say, unique in size, but also unique in, in quality and the breadth of, of the work they're doing. So truly yes, impressive. Yeah, be Because it seems that they're looking into a multitude of processes within plastic recycling and trying sure. to piece these mm -hmm. together in new ways and innovative ways to address the circular plastic challenge. Yeah, we talked pyrolysis, uh, catalytic pyrolysis, then pyrolysis, I guess, of mixed plastic waste, and then some uh, sort of pure polymers, polymer streams, mechanical recycling. Yeah, it, it really encompasses a lot of things. Yeah, I think one of the takeaways also uh, for me is the difference between pyrolysis and catalytic pyrolysis. Where with non-catalytic pyrolysis, you have a more uncontrolled breaking of bonds, which means that you have a more diverse set of molecules. Do you agree with that? Yes, I think that's also how I understood it, that the goal with catalytic pyrolysis will be to be more selective when you're breaking down the plastic somehow. Yes, and that makes sense. But as we've also seen is that there are many, many new components that you have not necessarily seen before in pyrolysis when you compare it to fossil oil. Yeah, yeah. I guess one thing are the hydrocarbons, and you can maybe even live with those being unpredictable and, and yeah. very broad range. But then it's these uh, other things like all these contaminants that you yeah. have in there. Yeah, they uh, are the a huge headache. challenge. And that doesn't matter what type of pyrolysis you're doing, you will still have the contaminants present. Yeah. But that's also where he talked about that they have made some hot filtration now where they can remove a substantial amount of the contaminants. But not the nitrogen, I heard. <laughs> no, I think that goes for, for hydro processing. But sure, I think there is this you know volume of work on trying to do it in a number of different ways. And of course, the more successful you are in doing it in an efficient way, but also relatively cheap way, the yeah. less pure plastic you can take into yes. your process. Yes, that makes perfect sense. They're also looking into how the steam cracker reacts to the different kinds of feedstocks, right? Oh, yeah. So I think there's a, a small steam cracker somewhere in the lab, which actually is very representative of what happens in these uh, million tons per year furnaces. So I thought that was also incredibly interesting to be able to do things yes. like that at a research or lab level. Yeah, because you really don't want to mess up a full-scale steam cracker by processing something that carries too many contaminants or reacts no. in an unfavorable way. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. Speaking of the lab-sized steam cracker, I was also impressed to hear about the electrical steam cracker project that they have. Oh, yeah. I think that was the electro project that Kevin mentioned where there are also other companies. And I think it was the Coolbrook uh, company providing that part, like the electrified furnace. So, sure, I mean, that's... Uh, the other important piece of the puzzle, right, where you're trying to lower the emissions of the plastic production, right, where you directly lower the 
steam cracker emissions by trying to to yeah. electrify it, right? Because as far as I recall, steam cracker operation takes place at quite high temperatures and you consume quite a lot of fossil fuels to heat it up. So if you can go via an electrical heater, you are way better off yeah, uh, yeah. with regards to carbon emissions, especially if it's renewable electricity that you're using to elevate the temperature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think renewable electricity is a must and I'm sure it will be there in the future, enough of it. So yes, that's the basically solving a really big issue and to a great extent. Yes. Another thing that you talked about with Kevin is this need for communication, which I think he, he really hits the nail on its head to translate a Danish expression is he really hits bullseye with this because the plastic industry, it's not like downloading a new app and then you change it all. It's simply not that easy. Yeah, that was a, that was a good expression. And I think it was very good to kind of stress the, as you say, the need to make the regulators, but also the public that it's a process, that it takes time, that involves the whole value chain. So um, it's not easy. But I think it stresses maybe the, as you said, well, the need for communication, but also the need for engagement of all of us working in that sector to kind of help with that. Yeah. And also talk to each other and elevate the amount of knowledge that is out there. Because I know at least I learn a lot from these podcasts, which is also not the reason that we're making them, not just to make me learn, but to make the entire industry learn about this and, and start talking even more together about how we solve this challenge. Yeah, that's that's the idea, definitely. And uh, I was really happy actually to see that there's so much intent and so much initiative also in the academic circles with Kevin and all he's doing. So hopefully together we can really mobilize. Yes, I also think it's it's impressive to see the amount of people working on this because it also feeds the industry. Oh, yes. With new ideas. Yeah, exactly. This is basically where somehow the innovation starts. And otherwise, without it, you dry out. Yes. So I'm very keen on following this work even closer. Me too. And that's a wrap of this episode of the Circular Plastic Podcast. Thank you to Kevin for joining us and helping us crack the field of chemical recycling by sharing all of his expert knowledge. As we could hear from Kevin, a lot of research within this field is currently taking place, paving the way for a greener future. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, then please remember to share with your colleagues and friends. <laughs>